Hello, this is Robert Crowther for ID the Future, a podcast of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. What would happen if Charles Darwin were to come back today? That's the intriguing question posed by Nikhil John Ramju's fascinating short novel, I, Charles Darwin. Over the next several weeks, ID the Future is presenting an audio adaptation of Ramju's book. In today's episode, Darwin explores what we've learned about the fossil record since his time on Earth, and it's not what he expects. He lived in an age before antibiotics, before computers, and before the discovery of DNA. Yet Charles Darwin changed our science and culture forever. What would Darwin say if he returned to the Earth today? Find out in I, Charles Darwin, icharlesdarwin.com. Episode 2, The Fossils and the Tree. In my sojourn, I turned next with great expectation to the fossil testimony for my idea. What would the record of the rock say, the testament of Earth's life in distant eras, which we were beginning to explore and document in my time? We had discovered many extinct forms of life and many primitive ancestors, or so we thought, of species living today. We believed the rock strata were revealing evidence of a steady and constant upward evolution from primitive forms to a seemingly numberless species of life. But we had uncovered essentially no transitional forms of life to solidify our classification system. Certainly 150 years of more research should have yielded a plenitude of the previously missing links in the great divisions of life. Thus I was most excited as I took up the texts of my worthy paleontologist successors, for in those 150 years, theirs had been, I learned, one of the growth industries of science, to invoke one of the charming evolutionary phrases of your modern English language. As part of my research, I even learned to use your World Wide Web and was fascinated by this magical research tool when I first saw it in use in one of your libraries. It was on this amazing World Wide Web that I found a listing of hundreds of major fossil sites now being excavated. These fossil sites exist on every continent, including Antarctica, and on many of the Earth's island groups. In my time, naturalists and geologists had uncovered a fossil panoply of long-extinct life-forms, along with others appearing clearly as ancestral to modern species. Those remains aided us in piecing together a comprehensive classification system by which we could reckon and name the ages of the Earth and the divisions of animal life back to the early rock strata, which you now call the Cambrian. In the similarities of the skeletal body structures we found in the fossil record, we sought a grand evolution of life, from the earliest primordial form upward to the first primitive animal species, branching then to new species within the common genera and to their further branching in an increase of genera, and forming families, orders and classes to be gathered into the major phyla of life within the plant and animal kingdoms. That was the fixed idea which I, and Wallace too about the same time, successfully defended. But as I pointed out, 
we awaited the fossil finds that would provide a fuller record of transitional forms that had to have existed as links in the evolution of life's major divisions across time. I read voraciously in your sources and texts, and with the special powers granted me, I visited many fossil sites, for I knew the record of the rocks was hardly to be disputed. It was with utter astonishment that I discovered that that record, explored intensively throughout the globe in the century and a quarter since I departed, has essentially failed to produce intermediate forms. There are virtually no plausible transitional fossilized forms linking the major divisions over the past 500 million years. It's been next to impossible to find missing links in the myriad of intermediate forms which my theory demanded would be found. Not in the famous Burgess Shale of British Columbia, nor in the Edie Akrin Hills of South Australia, nor elsewhere. No fossils documenting the skeletal and organ changes necessary to demonstrate evolution across the great schematic of life. Rather than a graduated timeline of all Earth species from the earliest forms to the latest which my theory proposed, you made in the early part of your century a stunning discovery. That was the appearance, suddenly in geological time, with no ancestors, of the body plans of living animal forms extant in the world today, along with the multitude of those long extinct. This Cambrian explosion of life, which the multiple excavated sites all revealed, showed animal phyla as distinct from each other as they are today. At major excavation sites from the Burgess Shale discovered in 1909 to the comprehensive Chen Yang finds in Yunnan province in China in the 1980s, there were no pre-Cambrian ancestor forms. In those earlier strata, only simple unicellular and primitive multicellular forms appear, but no direct precursors to animals. Radiometric dating of formations just above and below the Cambrian strata at another Cambrian site in Siberia set the Cambrian explosion of life at 530 million years ago. What can this mean? It appears to mean that the great phyla of the animal kingdom known to us did not evolve bottom-up from earlier, more primitive forms. The Cambrian explosion documented in the strata reveals the opposite. The phyla came first. Life on Earth diversified from the pre-Cambrian ancestor forms, top-down. Moreover, most species appear fully formed, and it has been established do not change from the time of their first appearance in the fossil record until they disappear from it. I visited the Burgess and Chen Yang sites and others just to assure myself that they really existed, and I examined closely your documentation, all the while recalling what I had written in the opus by which I had introduced my signal idea to the world. If numerous species belonging to the same genera or families have really started into life all at once, the fact would be fatal to the theory of descent with slow modification through natural selection. I am stupefied, but I am also cheered, for science must of needs be elated by great factual discoveries. But what could this fundamental denial by the fossil record of the grand upward-branching tree of life mean? I examined closely your theories related to the transitional intermediate forms upon which my bottom-up theory depended. I hope to encounter, if not evidence, then some plausible explanation for all these missing links. In my inquiry, I was taken by an assertion that the amazingly complex avian feather structure which I studied had evolved from a reptilian frayed scale. 
What could have been the intermediate's involvement on the way to the perfection of the feather with its unique system of co-adapted components? I paraphrase briefly from the plentiful literature your biologists have given you. Such presumably evolving appendages of reptile-to-bird intermediates on their way from one well-operating function, ground mobility, to a much different well-operating function, flight, would surely have resulted in clumsy and non-functional appendages, and therefore fatalities in nature's competition. Does not such an intermediate appendage, and there would have had to have been many successful improved such appendages, necessarily signify dysfunction? And with dysfunction, not evolution, but the end of the line. I note a latter-day way round the problem, the punctuated equilibrium notion, advanced by your late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. Professor Gould said nature made jumps. Here is the problem. How can the incipient evolving structure, say, of one part of a creature, a part previously so obviously and beautifully adapted to and integrally meshed with all the other parts of the same creature, make its sudden appearance without retarding fatally the so marvellously integrated whole organism? I find no shred of empirical evidence to support such jumps, which are equivalent to the multiple universes that some of your astronomers fancifully rationalised based on naught empirical evidence. So what remains of my gradualism? The incontestable record of the Cambrian explosion and the failure of fossil evidence for intermediates that might have buttressed my theory leaves me with gaps of logic that cannot be closed. The gaps are overwhelming. I'm left with a stunning conclusion. The major structures of the living world are discontinuous. Just as in your pioneering world of particle physics, in which you cannot change one sort of atom into another, so there is, in the living world, no grand continuum. Nature is ruled by discontinuities. But I am further troubled by something here. I find a marked strangeness in your Professor Gould's witty admission that the lack of transitional forms in the fossil record is the trade secret of paleontology. What does biology, indeed all science, have to do with secrets and concealments? Yet in the printed and electronic media of your time, as well as the three-dimensional reconstructions in your museums of natural history, I see my tree of life faithfully reproduced everywhere as if the Cambrian explosion of life had never occurred, and I marvel at the sheer asserted totality that your portrayals of evolutionary data imply are present in the fossil record. Particularly, I am drawn to the dramatic portrayals of the March to Man subject I elucidated to great ensuing controversy in my book The Descent of Man. I refer to the image sequence one sees everywhere of the march from simian forms through many named stages of hominid evolution to arrival at the gates of civilization, modern Homo sapiens. One of the portrayals reminded me of the wild Fuegians I observed in our Cape Horn expeditions in 1833, who at that late date appeared not to have achieved the milestone of civilization. What astonishing finds there must have been since my passing to have yielded the evolutionary odyssey of our species as so dramatically portrayed in your museums. It was with surprise and disappointment that I examined, sometimes surreptitiously, the assembled bone specimens identifying the ancestors of man. I examined the famous leaky bone fragments and associated rival fragments, among others. 
I do not say willingly that I was astonished by the paucity and incompleteness of many of the skull fragments and skeletal pieces I found in the research drawers by means of my special access. Perhaps paucity is another sometime trade secret. I found that the scant collection of supposedly pre-human skull fragments demonstrates no sequence of evolutionary development whatsoever. Rather, they are placed into pre-existing narratives of the march to man. I ask, are your paleontologists scientists? Or are they storytellers who seem constantly in celebration of the discovery of new first humans? I learned that paleontologists in Kenya discovered, in close physical proximity, skull fragments of Homo erectus and Homo habilis, one supposed previously to be the other's ancestor. Should not someone now inform the artists of the heroic March to Man cartoons to redraw the family human tree, since the two putatively successive species may actually have lived side by side? Another amazing example I read about was Lucy, whose remains were discovered in Ethiopia in 1974 and were once styled the grandmother of humanity. I observed Lucy's retired cache of bones, carefully secured from public gaze in a safe in Addis Ababa, to which I had special access. One must be reminded that a set of hominid scraps are often the remains of a single individual. How does one convincingly extrapolate such data to a new species claim? In the well-reported finds of some paleontology celebrities of your era, it appears to me that the passage from suggestive data to evidential certitude has been remarkable. I believe that the beckoning chalice of the first man, which paleoanthropologists so ambitiously seek, clouds a greater paleontological truth. It is not the march to man that they have secured. Rather, they are discovering one specimen after another of nature's Mendelian diversity, they are finding the ever-branching diversity exhibited within two hominid forms, similar in body plan but distinct in the most significant distinction in the living world, that which separates humanity from all other life. In my time I was struck by the amazing diversity in the physiognomy and underlying skull structure of even 19th century Homo sapiens throughout the globe, including those in Europe. Now I note the recent DNA evidence, I'll speak more on that subject later, that one of man's variously theorised predecessor or companion species, Neanderthal, indeed mated with Homo sapiens. Indeed, a minor percentage of Europeans today carry some Neanderthal genes, and the appearance of Neanderthal-like visages on the streets of European cities may be observed, but does not interbreeding negate separate species classification. I see here a sometimes casualness I had not expected to find. What is evidence uncritically weighed? In my lifetime, I believe my own findings indicated an important theory, but I did not fit my findings to my theory. Science is complex, but it should never be tendentious. One should not present to the museum public and to schoolchildren text and reconstruction images as if they possessed the authenticity of photographic reality. I will speak only briefly of paleontology scandals, large and small, that have marred the record since I last breathed 19th century air. The fraudulent reconstruction of specimens from parts known to be unrelated. The most prominent I discovered with dismay is the so-called Piltdown Man, an inventive assembly of the jaw of a modern orangutan chemically treated to appear as a fossil, with skull fragments of a modern human. Its zealous inventors succeeded in touting it to the believing public for over 40 years as the long-sought missing link between simian and man. 
An evolutionary scientist in the British Museum assembled the fraudulent skull. One may only weep. Let me say that during my lifetime I observed contradictions in my theory. I fully expected them to find future resolution. But who can deny that the record of the rocks, which I have just noted, fundamentally contradicts the whole schematic that grew and thrived on my idea? I shall make my point simple. The be-all and end-all tree of life encompassing the origin and descent of every present and extinct species based on structural similarities, the bat's wing to the human hand, for example, is a metaphor which the evidence no longer supports. Similar body parts like the bat wing, human hand example, we call homologous. Where homology was detectable, my theory inferred a common ancestor of the ever-branching forms of life descending through slow and slight modifications by natural selection. This was blind nature's way of selecting the most fit, the most adaptable to survive. Sometimes I like to taunt my religious-inspired contemporaries about the pentadactyl pattern I observed in the limbs of the major terrestrial vertebrates. Why would a creator feel constrained to hold such a rigid template if he could do anything? The inference here is that homology proved common descent. Now I find that a branch of my successors, your embryologists, have upended my certitude. They have found that embryology of the three classes of vertebrates, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, denies the homology principle. For example, organs such as vertebrate kidneys in disparate life forms cannot be traced back to homologous cells. Seemingly similar or homologous structures have distinctly non-homologous beginnings in their respective embryos. Here is a finding that further shook my faith in the tree. Most genes, which of course, as my successors have established, determine the characteristics of the next generation, affect in higher organisms more than one organ system. Genes are non-homologous. But is not the concept of homology absolutely fundamental to my idea, indeed to evolutionary theory today? The resemblances among species which I took to demonstrate homology, nature's modification of similar structures to different purposes, lies at my theory's very heart. My evidence was circumstantial. Indeed, I am now struck by the patently circular reasoning process my idea actually demands. The theory of descent from a common ancestor requires a subsequent evolution of similar or homologous structures, and those structures, when they emerge, prove common descent. Homology is inferred from common ancestry, and is then used as evidence for common ancestry, as one of your biologists has pointed out. Theory requires the outcome, and the outcome confirms the theory. In my sojourn with you, I sometimes rested my brain by scanning your incredible television commercials. I will mention an apropos line. What was I thinking? There is no credible tree of life. The Cambrian explosion negates it, and the discontinuities of presumed homologous structures refuted. The crashing of the great tree in the forest of contentious, truth-seeking science has hurt my ears. This much remains. Natural selection occurs on the microscale, that is, within species, and in instances beyond the species barrier. The environmental advantage for dominance or survival gained by individuals of a species favoured by breeding's diverse gene selection is documented in human historical time. They are observed instances of evolutionary change resulting in emergence of new species, as in the European gull, through its many generational migration across Eurasia. And yet, some new species, as defined by their preferential breeding behaviour, are observed to interbreed with ancestor species. 
In sum, I found much to deepen my skepticism about my initial premises and assumptions of 1859. And yet in my odyssey, in your remarkable age of baffling human behaviour and intellectual idolatries, more than disappointment lay ahead in my amazing adventure. I, Charles Darwin is based on the novella by Nicol John Romju. Audio adaptation by John West and Jens Jorgensen. Narration by Robert Blythe and Andres Williams. Music by Pond5.com. Copyright 2013 by Nicol John Romju and Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. For ID the Future, this is Robert Crowther. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2013. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.